Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Sean Stewart, great to have you once again on our weekly roundup podcast. Happy to be here. Nice to catch up, guys. Well, the week delivered for us. We get to spend this entire episode of uh, the Hub Roundtable on the leadership debate. Um, <laughs> as you guys know, I've moderated a few debates in my time as the chair of the Monk debates, including a federal election debate uh, between Stephen Harper, Justin Trudeau, and Thomas Mulcair. So I'm not going to bias your analysis by bigfooting you as the supposed expert on debate. So let's go around the horn first and get each of your reflections. And Stuart, I want to begin with you because you wrote a terrific, once again, kind of weekly roundup on the conservative leadership race, which is on the hub today. Uh, If you're listening to this podcast, go to www.thehub.ca to check out Stuart's analysis of the debate and the other kind of news in the conservative leadership race. You can find that every Friday morning on the Hub website. So Stuart, you've covered a lot of these as a journalist over the years. Uh, Dare I ask a scorecard here? Dare I ask a grade uh, for this debate and how it fits into your kind of pantheon of the good, the bad, and the ugly of political (laughs) debates? Yeah, I so one thing that I did, which I think is a good thing to do if you're a journalist or a pundit or whatever, is I watched it without any sort of social media feedback. And um, I I was actually putting my one year old to bed while I watched it too. So it was kind of an interesting way to take it all in. Um, But I think, you know, I thought it was instructive. I thought it was a really interesting debate. Um, It was pretty fierce at times, um, which is probably a little more fierce than I expected. but I thought it really did lay out the field uh, in a way that was useful to prospective voters. And, you know, I think probably the headline skirmish was about the trucker convoy and how those lines kind of divide there. You had Leslin Lewis attacking Polyev from the right for not supporting the convoy enough. And you had John Charest saying, you know, it was a criminal endeavor and it's disqualifying to support it and getting booed by the crowd at the uh, Canada Strong and Free Network conference. Um, So, you know, that moment in itself, if you tell that to a prospective voter who missed the debate, it basically sums up the whole thing for you. Sean, let me come to you now. Uh, Give us your sense. What what should someone maybe, frankly, who was spared having to watch this debate? You know, we all for this podcast uh, today subjected ourselves to it. Again, the good, the bad, the ugly. So for those who are not going to tune into this, Sean, who are going to skip this one proverbially, what's the insight? What's the takeaway? Well, let me start by saying um, if, if 
uh, hub readers uh, check out um, Stuart's uh, analysis, they'll have a good sense of the, the key issues that were covered in the debate. It, but we also accompanied his analysis with Malcolm Jolly's biweekly wine column, which might be a good pairing um, for, for uh, the hub community. Um, you know, I would say two things quick. First, um, congratulations to the Canada Strong and Free Network um, for hosting this debate. You know, they have a conference this weekend. I think there's a lot of energy around the new president, President Jamil Giovanni. Um, Stuart wrote a story about that this week at the hub. Um, so congratulations to them and the team for pulling off, I think, what was a pretty professional looking uh, debate. As for the substance, guys, you know, we try to stay free of, of politics and focus on ideas and policy at the hub. And it seems to me this was a pretty policy free conversation. Um, uh, you know, there's some debate about tax policy and, 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 and um, lockdowns, but otherwise, I was struck by just how personal it was and how little policy discussion there was, even though there are some substantive differences on policy between the different candidates. Scotch Atchison, for instance, has come out um, uh, in favor of uh, ending or eliminating Canada's system of supply management, and yet there was no discussion or debate about that. So, um, you know, it seems to me uh, the, the candidates are going to have to start to articulate um, policy programs, um, or I think people will be turned off. They don't want to watch an hour and a half of, of people just fighting amongst each other over who's more or less conservative. So I think in that sense, it was a bit of a, a disappointment. Yeah, good takeaways. Um, I go at this maybe a little bit differently. There was a kind of interesting question that uh, Jamal asked the panelists uh, one by one, which was, you know, what is the effects, the risks of importing into Canada U.S. style political polarization, the sharpness, the ferocity of U.S. political debate. And it was interesting because each of the panelists kind of gave, each of the panelists, each of the leaders gave, you know, peons to, you know, Canadian unity and diversity and regionalism. But the entire hour and a half to me was like mainlining the Republican, you know, um, debates of their last leadership convention, uh, conventions in, in either of the you know, the Trump cycles. In other words, it was a debate filled with weird moments of, um, of again, language that, you know, we've talked about this before, but, you know, this, this use of phraseology like wokeism and uh, a kind of, uh, I mean, it's not as hard right as like a, as the world of Breitbart, but it, it's as if there's a portion of the conservative mind in Canada, which has become completely captured by the memes and tropes of U.S. conservative, uh, not thought, but movement politics. And I think this is dangerous for the party because I think Canadians are not there. I think the United States is in a very unique and possibly dangerous place in terms of the polarization of its politics. And I just walked away from this, you know, uh, again, like Stuart, trying to turn off the social media feeds and maybe trying to put myself in the position of a, you know, an undecided voter turning into this and tuning into that debate. And this a lot of like slamming um, of vaccine uh, mandates, vaccine requirements. And the last time I looked at public opinion polls, I mean, this is something upwards of 80% of Canadians support. But if you listen to that debate, it's not simply a criticism of it. It's a kind of 
I don't know, a tour of the stations of the cross, <laughs> you know, that, that anti-vaxxers suffered during the pandemic. Uh, I don't know, uh, Stuart, let me come back to you, but I just, I have a feeling like this party is way off the mainstream and maybe a bit kind of drunk on, uh, you know, the energy that seemingly comes out of, you know, those darker places of U.S. American populism uh, at the current moment. Yeah, I, it, it will be interesting to see how the subsequent debates go, because there was a few things, I think, driving it in that direction. One is that, of course, they have Roman Baber on stage, who basically his career to this point, the arc of it is about protesting these mandates. And that's how he sort of gained notoriety, He's sort of using that. He kind of shoved it into every response. So that brought that up. There is also this thing about the truckers that is not going to go away. And that was something that Sheree raised immediately when he started attacking Polyev. So that I think was naturally going to be part of the debate. The other thing was something that John mentioned, which was that, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to, to backseat drive on uh, moderator question choices because they have an hour and a bit and it's like so hard to cover all the topics, but just the way the chips fell for the candidates we didn't have any topics on, uh, you know, housing, affordability, sort of day-to-day -day living expenses, inflation, and stuff like that. The issues that are kind of mainstream and drive people like Pierre Polyev towards the mainstream just weren't touched on. And then the other part is that this is a very conservative audience. Like the the voter base of the party is conservative, but this is a it's conference. Not, Stuart, though, I, I would quibble with you. It's not conservative. It's radical. Like, let's call it for what it is. I don't know, Sean, am I wrong? Am I being too harsh? Jeez, uh, um, I would say where I agree with you um, is that it, it seems funny that the litmus test for one's conservatism in the current moment is whether or not you supported the, the trucker convoy, um, which just seems to be a kind of odd place to be. Um, you know, for a long time, conservatives were the party of the rule of law, a public order, and so on. And so um, to have the candidates fighting over who more vociferously supported um, the, the Freedom Convoy and the um, blockades um, just strikes me as, as um, un unhealthy. Um, I would say, though, that, um, it, you know, that there is a substantial share of the population that thinks um, that what we've gone through over the past couple of years uh, involved a series of choices by governments that were illiberal, um, that were, um, you know, incompatible with the charter, and so on. And, you know, there needs to be a political expression for that point of view. And, you know, I think that has come to manifest itself in the Conservative Party. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I think it's, there's something inevitable that um, someone like Roman Baber is going to find uh, uh, an audience for um, for his message, um, but but I, I guess at just a fundamental level, uh, you know, I think um, at, at the risk of showing my cards that conservative ideas are good, that conservative ideas are broadly right, um, that is correct, um, and uh, it, that wasn't reflected in last night's discussion. Um, and so it seems to me, if just at a fundamental, if Canadian conservatives aspire to a 50% plus one party or politics, which incidentally is the subject of the final panel on Saturday at, at the Canada Strong and Free Network, um, they're going to have to do better than what we saw last night. Last night was not a 50% plus one political proposition. It was 
a discussion and debate um, really focused on the, the 25, 26, 27% of Canadians that are um, baked in um, to um, the Conservative Party. Yeah, intramural is the way, you know, I would put it. Now, Stuart, let me come to you. Let's talk a little bit about the sparks that flew between Polyev and Charest because, um, you know, it it was, uh, yeah, I think it was a bit surprising. And we can tell there's no love lost between these two campaigns. But you really had, I think, two moments that jumped out at me. One was Pierre Polyev really accusing Charest of, of corruption within his cabinet. I think, I don't know the exact phraseology, but I seem to remember the use of the word corruption and charade another a point firing back at Polyev around the, um, I believe it was around the, the uh, barbaric practices, quote, snitch line, uh, you know, that Pierre was lying uh, and, you know, effectively was a liar. Um, you know, what does this do to a campaign, because I guess, you know, again, Sean said, you know, we're kind of worried about policy. We want people to actually talk about some ideas that could move Canada towards a better, more dynamic, pluralistic future. And wow, you know, it seems that the, the front runner campaigns are now committed to a very personal uh, grudge match here of insults. And I don't know, once you go down that road, Stuart, I think it's it's kind of hard to to get off. Yeah, I, one of the things I was thinking a few days ago was this is a campaign that exists in a certain amount of darkness, which we've talked about a bit, which is, you know, we don't know who's winning for sure because it's all happening behind the scenes. One of the ways you can sort of tell is Pierre Polyev, we assume, is the front runner based on all of the, the data we have about that. Um, would he go into this debate and act like a front runner and sort of, you know, not address Charest and talk about policy and be above the fray? That would have been a sign that they're very confident they're ahead. And then I thought, can Pierre Polyev actually do that? Like, if he was the front runner, could he refrain from ripping Jean Charest a new one on the stage? I don't actually know the answer to that. And the problem is that voters will not know the answer to that. And they're electing the guy who's going to go up on stage with Justin Trudeau. And I've I've watched a lot of committee hearings, um, debates like this with Pierre Polyev. He, I'm actually adjacent to his writing, so I, I know him somewhat locally too. This is what he's good at. When he gets into a hearing, he's interrogating someone, he's a prosecutor, and it really, really works. Um, conservatives who are on committees with him love being on a committee with him because he's so good at it. Um, he's done this to the prime minister at committee. I don't think that that tenor has the same effect when you're running to be the prime minister. Um, so the question I think we all have right now, and we've talked about this a little bit too, is can he turn that off or is this the only mode that he has so if i'm a conservative voter that's the one thing i'm looking at in the subsequent debates um is this just a one-trick pony or does he have a second mode here sean just to go uh, like peel the onion here a little bit you know charade's attacks on the um on polyev regarding the barbaric practices snitch line and maybe you could just remind listeners what that was because i believe you were in the harper war room uh in that campaign if i'm not mistaken is this was this a thanks kind for of reminding a, me <laughs> i'm sure it's all blacked out uh ptsd but uh, you were there and i just wondered if this was sheree kind of attacking jenny byrne like i wonder if it was basically sheree without saying it saying you know polyev if you were serious you wouldn't have Jenny Byrne as your campaign manager. I thought there was a kind of interesting subtext here that it'd be like, let's raise it up. Let's, as Sean, as Stuart said, 
lift the veil a bit here for our hub listeners and and maybe shine a bit of a light here, maybe on some of the dynamics that are actually happening between these campaigns, these two front runners. Yeah, I think your interpretation is exactly right, um, that in the 2015 election campaign, there was a secondary announcement made by Kelly Leach and Chris Alexander, um, you know, that I think probably at some level was well-intended um, to draw attention to the concerns or issues around uh, what, what were called barbaric cultural practices. Um, um, it uh, went as poorly as one in hindsight could imagine. Um, and it continues to, uh, as Sheree said in, in his comments, um, continues to create some issues for the party in um, certain ethnic communities and immigrant communities. And, and I think he, he exactly raised it um, to imply not just Polya, but people working for Polya, including Jenny Byrne, who was then campaign manager of the 2015 campaign, somehow ought to be um, held to account. Uh, let me just say this. I, I think Sheree's weakest moments yesterday uh, were one, um, when he was asked point blank, as he's, are you a conservative? And he didn't answer definitively, which just strikes me. This was like the softest ball thrown up. Any kind of, um, any conservative politician um, could have, you know, knocked that one of the park. And, and instead, um, he had a kind of meandering and, and, um, and, and a, a bit circumspect answer, which strikes me in hindsight is just a big mistake. But the other, and it relates to your question, Rudyard, is he took a couple of runs at the government that Pierre Polyev was part of. Um, and in fact, later on, I saw his campaign tweeted, I respect Stephen Harper. You know, it seems to me, um, <laughs> explicitly or implicitly, if you're criticizing the Harper government, and not focused on the Trudeau government, you're going to have a difficult time um, uh, winning uh, this leadership, which you know, just gets to the root of the problem for Jean Charest, which is he just feels like he's an extra in a movie and he doesn't quite have the script. I'm a little bit older than you guys, so I actually remember 1995. Um, in fact, for those of you who may remember I created something called the Dominion Institute, which was a charity with some friends to promote, you know, civics and history across Canada and did that for over a decade and largely inspired by that referendum in the sense that there wasn't an argument, an articulate argument for both English speaking nationalism and also a kind of dialogue with Quebec. So I, I mentioned that because it, Stuart, it kind of, it didn't resonate with me and it's interesting, you know, that is my lived experience. It was a big part of my professional life. It, it, I find it odd to have charade constantly going back to 1995. It's like talking about, I don't know, uh, the sack of Troy or uh, the Peloponnesian Wars <laughs> for, many, for many people. Like, am I wrong? You're, you're younger than me. Uh, does that kind of, does, does Charest's quote, national unity service, because he seems to constantly invoke this as one of his key credentials. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, that is. So I'm, you know, nearly 40. I was uh, 12 when the referendum happened. And it's kind of one of, it's one of my first, you know, political moments where I remember saying to my mom, well, look, we won. And she was like, well, we barely won. So <laughs> it's not that great. Um, and I think, you know, to me, that's really all it is. I don't have like, um, you know, big memories about that and not really influential memories. And 
you're right. I kind of, like I think about it in kind of abstract terms. And I think with Sheree, the trouble is, you know, when you go to a job interview and they say, um, what's this gap in your resume? Um, he has a very long gap of, you know, being the premier of Quebec that he can't really talk about in positive terms. Um, and that's what he has to go back on. Um, it, it does not resonate. And I, I think that is the trouble with Sheree is that he just can't find that message. He's been talking about unity and unifying. And I just do not think that conservatives right now, after this pandemic, a lot of them are still angry about policies, angry about Trudeau. Unifying and unity is not really the thing that they're most um, into right now. May I just say something here, um, Rudyard and, and Stuart? You know, one of the reasons we created the hub was because we, we don't think that there is kind of sufficient debate and discourse in Canada about the country's future. And that's manifested in polling where Canadians say they're, they're um, dubious about the future, including the future of their children. And so we've created the hub, at least in part, to try to push Canadian debate and dialogue and, and commentary and analysis uh, onto the big questions that will shape Canada's future. In fact, uh, readers and viewers may know that um, early in 2021, we carried out a series that we called the Frontier Series, where we commissioned uh, uh, authors and contributors to make the case what the big issue facing the country in 2050 would be. And I think fundamentally, the problem with uh, Sheree's emphasis on the 1995 referendum is it's failing that test. Uh, Canadians, conservatives don't want to hear about something that happened, you know, more than 30, almost 30 years ago. They want to know what these guys or, or, or what Dr. Lewis is going to do uh, about the questions before us. Canada's place in the world, uh, um, cost of living issues, uh, uh, our struggling productivity, um, you know, our flatline GDP per capita, all of these big fundamental questions, our family formation issues, our falling fertility rate, all of these big fundamental questions facing the country and arguing where you were and what you did in 1995 when Stuart was 12, I was 13, and our producer Amal, I don't think was born yet, uh, is just, um, you know, it just seems to me fails that kind of fundamental test of what are you, what have you done for me lately and what are you going to do for me in the future? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Amal because Amal is an essential part of the Hub team. Uh, she's somebody who, uh, does an incredible amount of work for us around content, but she's also, as you said, in her 20s. So Amal, I wanna bring you into this discussion. I want your reflections on this debate. As a 20-year-old that's not politically aligned, um, I know we, we didn't expect you to watch the debate, you didn't watch it, but listening to this conversation with us, to what extent does this Conservative Party, as it's manifesting itself during this leadership campaign, at all resonate with you and the concerns of your cohort? Thanks, guys. I'm coughing and hacking over here. But you know what? Yeah, like, I'll just join in. Um, honestly, how I see with my friends and when we talk about these issues, like, so I was born in 96. I'm going to turn 26 soon. The concerns of housing, the concerns of family formation, these are real issues in the forefront of my generation's mind. Currently, there's a lot of polling out there saying that people who don't own a house, they're not going to, they don't expect to own a house anytime soon or ever which is very disheartening for folks in our generation because growing up we were expected to we learned that we had to go to university to get a good job to have a good life and then you get a house and then you get married then you have kids the normal things of adulthood and i'm sorry i'm 26 i'm still living with my parents so 
I'm not entirely sure. Like, and just hearing from you, from you guys what's going on with the conservative debate, it just kind of sounds disheartening. Just yeah. to be honest, like, I really don't, at this moment in time, like, yeah, we've been doing these weekly roundups that I've been reading each conservative leader. But honestly, even though I'm not part of the conservative movement, even just l- with looking at potential leaders, I don't really see anyone who's actually going to be a leader for all Canadians. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Yeah, thanks, Amal. And I, you know, I, I think we hear some of the emotion in your voice and the emotion of your generation, and it's a good thing to remind us, you know, look, I'll embarrass you a bit more. You're a highly skilled graduate of the Monk School of Global Affairs, one of our premier public policy schools in Canada. We're extremely fortunate to have you. And, you know, the world should be your oyster, right? Um, you know, I certainly had that opportunity. Um, you know, I think maybe the curtain began to close a little bit, but it looks like Sean and, uh, and and Stuart have squeezed through. And we want, you know, we want the Amals of the world, guys. Uh, let me come to you, Sean, to, you know, have the same sense of like opportunity, optimism. And as you hear from Amal, and I think this is a good reminder, it's like all those features of adulthood, owning a house, family formation, um, you know, a, a living wage, a profession that's stable, that you can build your skills and networks in, you know, all of that is just so uncertain. And surely, Sean, that's where, you know, the big political uh, locus of change and movement and, and arguably for the Conservative Party, where they have to have really meaningful answers. I just didn't hear anything about the issues that Amal just raised in, in last night's debate. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with, with Amal or, or what you just said, Rudyard. We've talked in the past that uh, Daryl Bricker has been beating the drum on this issue of a growing sense of stalled middle-class progress in Canada, um, that those um, traditional touchstones of, of uh, maturation and, and, um, and the, the elevator into the middle class is suddenly um, broken down. And I, I think it's exactly right that this is where Big C and small C conservatism needs to needs to orient itself. Let me just give you one example, because um, I think this is kind of profound. Uh, Lyman Stone, the demographer at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, now a PhD student at McGill, has shown that um, in Canada, um, Canadians are Canadian families are having fewer kids than they say they want, um, um, and that's a sign, I think, of what we're talking about here. That um, uh, that for all of the various reasons that Amal raises, uh, we're just getting established later. And that's resulting in, in people having fewer children than, than they themselves uh, tell pollsters they want. So, you know, I hope in, in, in the subsequent debates that that's where uh, these are the issues where the, the conversation is directed and where policy thinking and so on, where all that energy goes, because I think it's it kind of fundamentally the biggest issue facing the country. I'll stop talking in one second, but for all the talk of national unity and regional fissures and so on. I actually think the biggest threat to social cohesion and political stability are, are, are these issues. They're generational. Um, and um, I think that's um, the, the kind of key to uh, building that 50% plus one um, political proposition that I raised earlier. Yeah, great, great answers. Um, Stuart, let's wrap up the show with you. Um, 
what what can we look forward to uh, in the hub uh, next week? What are the stories and ideas um, that you'll be publishing for our readers? Yeah, let me just wrap up quickly by pointing out one quick thing that I thought was like a subtly devastating thing that Leslie Lewis said at the debate, which was um, she said to Pierre Polyev, you can't just be the finance minister. And I think that was an interesting turn of phrase. And I think it also shows the lack of vision here. Um, this That is a solvable problem, but I think it's worth keeping an eye on. Um, next week at The Hug, we have, I, I'm pretty excited actually, we have Chris Spoke on housing. We've been doing this debate on who should fix the housing problem. So rest assured that even though the debate wasn't about this, we will continue to hammer away on this topic. We have Jack Granenstein. We have a, we have a bunch of good stuff coming your way. Nice. Well, look, everybody, thanks for being part of the pod this week. And Amal, thank you for letting me surprise you there uh, and bring you into the discussion. I really uh, appreciate it. Uh, your contributions because look it reminds us that you know we as sean said we got to have a conversation that deals with the generational divides and you know deep generational dissatisfaction that is growing amongst you know uh, millennials and and younger and that's not the kind of country you know i want and i want a politics that's going to fix it uh, so we will continue to dig into these big issues and debates uh, on this roundtable as we go forward. Everybody have a terrific weekend and we'll do this all again next Friday. Take care team. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only hub dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.